Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on June 18th, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. Earlier this year, we aired the first in a series of discussions called Science on the Hill, Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., that is. Scientific American Springer Nature and Congressman Jerry McNerney of California put on that event, which focused on sustainable energy. On June 14th, we all gathered again in the Rayburn Building on the Hill for our second event called AI, Robotics, and Your Health. What follows is an edited version of the hour-long conversation moderated by Scientific American's Mariette Cristina. You'll hear mention of HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, that's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which aims at keeping our medical records secure and private. Here's Mariette Cristina. Good morning. Thank you so much. Welcome. I'm so glad to see everybody here. My name is Mariette DeCristina. I'm the editor-in-chief of Scientific American. By the way, if you don't know it, Scientific American was founded in 1845, and so it's the oldest continuously published magazine in the United States. Um, we've been working with Representative Jerry McNearney, who I'm going to invite up in just a minute, to start this Science on the Hill series to bring information about the latest um, innovations and the people to the people who have to work on and decide how best to to regulate or to manage those innovations for society's benefit. Our first topic was uh, on new energy technologies for a sustainable future. Uh, but today we're going to turn to the topic of AI, robotics, and healthcare. I mean, from R2-D2 to the Roombas that vacuum our houses today, from, from Evil Hal to things like IBM's Watson helping with diagnoses, we've seen robots and AI jumping from science fiction into the real world and into our lives directly. And that's why it feels to me like it's never been a better time to discuss this topic that we're going to look at today. And now I'd like to introduce our host, Representative Jerry McNearney, from some opening remarks. Please welcome Jerry McNearney. Well, good morning. Uh, I just have to say it's always a pleasure to be around scientists and lovers of science. Uh, I myself am one of two actual scientists in Congress. Uh, I have a PhD in mathematics and differential geometry. I spent a career developing uh, wind energy technology. Uh, I wrote the codes that calculated the loads on, on dynamic wind turbines, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, artificial intelligence uh, and healthcare. Now, uh, as, as we know, um, science isn't the answer to everything, but uh, having an informed decision-making process is helpful and would be more helpful if we had more of that around here, uh, specifically uh, regarding legislation. I am working with uh, other members uh, in, in developing ideas uh, of how to enhance the, the artificial intelligence in medical uh, applications uh, with that. I will turn it over to the speakers, and I look forward to some good, good conversation, uh, both from the speakers and from the audience. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> so it's, it's high time I introduce you to our, our wonderful speakers, and I'm, I'm going to go from my right to left. Um, next to me is Suchi Saria, the John C. Malone Assistant Professor of Computer Science Statistics and Health Policy at Johns Hopkins University. She's also founding research director of the Malone Center for Engineering and Healthcare at Johns Hopkins. Welcome, Suchi. Um, next to Suchi is Pedro Domingos, professor of computer science at the University of Washington and author and co-author of more than 200 technical publications on machine learning, data mining, and other areas. Welcome to Pedro. 
And then next to Pedro is Pamela Hepp of the firm Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney in Pennsylvania, who concentrates her healthcare practice on issues affecting large healthcare institutions, including complex transactions, medical staff matters, and regulatory issues. Welcome, Pam. So I think, um, I think it would be really great just by way of people getting to know you a little bit better, if you, if you each wouldn't mind maybe a minute or a couple of minutes on um, what are, what are, a little bit more about your background and the areas that you're really focused on so people know who they're speaking to. Suchi, do you want to start off? Sure. Yeah. If you're, as a patient, approaching the clinic, you're sitting with your doctor, you've had uh, you know, a specific set of lab tests and you're wondering, you know, do you have a particular a diagnosis or not, are you going to respond to a drug in a, uh, poorly or not, or is this going to be um, have a secondary effect because of some other comorbidity you have? Um, now what's possible is that you can look at uh, data from millions of patients who came before you and watch what happened to them uh, over time in response to the to you know similar therapies that were given or to observe um, you know, what was done to them and how they reacted to figure, figure out exactly what is the right thing to do for you. And that's a really, really powerful paradigm shift that's happening in medicine. And our ability to do that, our ability to build infrastructure that allow us to safely and reliably use that data to inform decision-making is, uh, I think, going to be game-changing in medicine. That combined with one another new movement, which is the introduction of new sensors. So we're not only starting to digitize tons of data that's already available, we're also becoming increasingly creative about new data sources that previously we had not thought to collect. So for example, there's work done in my lab where we're showing like Parkinson's as a disease, we only knew how to measure using the subjective 30 minute tests that people would do. And now it's becoming possible where you know, we've built in new ways by using sensors at home. And um, it's non-invasively on watching what the patient's doing, how they're reacting, how they're moving. And turns out those actually give you very powerful indicators of symptom fluctuations, which can be used to tailor your therapies and detect early if you're deteriorating, prompting timely treatment. So anyway, so I think a collection of both existing data, new data sources, new sensors, and a science that allows us to exploit all of this to figure out for any given patient at any given time or any given individual, not just patient, because it's all about wellness and disease, individual, what is the right thing to do? Thank you. Pedro, when you um, talk a little bit, could you also define AI for people? Because I realize we haven't said what it is. Sure. So here's what AI is. AI is trying to get computers to do things that used to take or at least currently take human intelligence, things like reasoning, planning, decision-making, vision, understanding speech and language. And one very important one is learning. Learning is really the ability that drives all the others. Uh, if we had the robot that was as intelligent as humans but didn't learn as well, you know, a minute later, it would already be falling behind. So machine learning is the field of AI that I, in particular, focus on. And it's really the field that's been enabling uh, all of these advances uh, that we're seeing today. When I did my PhD 20 years ago, machine learning was a very obscure field. Uh, one of the, the main things that I did was apply new learning algorithms to a whole slew of medical data sets where we wanted to diagnose different things, you know, based on the symptoms of the patients. And to my shock, at that time, we could already do this better than, than human doctors. Today, the systems are better still, but, this, but they're yet not widely deployed. So I think there's a lot that can happen uh, with, with AI in, in, in healthcare, and hopefully we can all help to bring it about. 
Pamela Hepp of the firm Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney in Pennsylvania. Hi, um, I am a healthcare attorney. I have been my entire career. I received my master's in public health with my law degree and um, my focus has always been healthcare. From a regulatory perspective, a lot of what I do is in the area of HIPAA and data security, including not only HIPAA, but the state law implications when we're dealing with super protected types of information, such as mental health information, HIV-related information, drug and alcohol information, all of which comes into play as we're sharing data. Um, another part of what I do is transactions, and that has included creating health information exchanges, which are um, organizations that take um, entities that have electronic health records and allow them to share data in a health information exchange. Typically at a regional level, there's movement to try to do that at the state level, and nationally um, it really hasn't um, exploded to the extent that I think it's desired, but those steps are occurring where health information exchanges are existing to exchange data between providers so that they have the information they need when a patient walks in the door about their medical history and not just the history of um, their care at that particular facility. Thank you. So we've heard a bit about processing data in, in better ways, whether it's existing data and, and new data, adding learning to that, and then a bit about, a little bit about, which I, I want to come back more on that, about how do we share that information or regulate it properly so that we get those better outcomes. There are a couple of other technologies that I thought we should at least introduce to the group. Um, Pedro, you mentioned, for instance, to me, care robots and how cell phones can even be used for better, to help improve healthcare. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, a big application of robotics is, is uh, elder care. Uh, in a, in, for example, Japan is the country that's most advanced there. They have, of course, a big shortage of, of manpower, and it's actually becoming quite common for uh, robots to take care of elders. Uh, and uh, you'd think that they would maybe be a little put off by that, but on the contrary, they seem to really like it. Uh, the robots are actually designed to be attentive to people's needs and to interact with them well. In fact, the robots these days uh, are actually better in some aspects at the emotional interaction with humans that they are picking things up. Picking something up is actually harder than reminding someone to take their medicine in a way that you know, they, they feel good about it and so on. So uh, robots for elder care actually, uh, you know, and of course as the population ages, right, then you know, there's gonna be a lot of you know, people with Alzheimer's and so on, uh, robots for elder care are going to be you know, a huge uh, industry. And, you know, they're gonna be very important to the well-being uh, of a lot of people. Another big one is, um, is mobile. Right, mobility and cell phones are going. They are starting already to completely revolutionize healthcare because they have all these sensors that are, you know, on all the time. They have an accelerometer. They have a microphone. They have GPS. Uh, they can register your vital signs continuously. This idea that once a year you go to the doctor's office and you get, you know, a few, you know, readings taken is, you know, that belongs to the last millennium. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we already have someone who said that, you know, the cell phone uh, saved their lives because. Uh, it was they were starting to have a heart attack, and the cell phone noticed something unusual. And and and, you know, and actually, I think before long, what's going to happen is that your cell phone, if you're having a heart attack, will call nine one one before you do that. So nine one one will come to you because the cell phone actually made that happen. There's this competition to try to design, you know, more sensors to put on the cell phone to record, you know, the things that need to be recorded. So we're looking at a world where your health is being continuously monitored. And, you know, the interventions can happen as soon as they're necessary. You know, of course, the quality of understanding of what's going on with your health will be much greater. 
uh, there will be a lot of AI and machine learning on top of that to figure out what's going on and what needs to happen. Uh, and, and all of this is still in its early stages, but once it's done, I think it will be a, a huge revolution. Thank you. I'd like to dive in just a little bit more about some of the benefits of, of AI itself in, in research areas. Suchi, maybe you could speak a little bit about you know, what, what, what AI and other uh, technologies are doing to help, help research, to develop ideas and so on. Pedro, feel free to add to that as well. So I want to elaborate a little bit more on Pedro's point of, mm. uh, you know, in order to talk about this in terms of what is AI and what is machine learning, because I think um, there is um, sort of this um, sci-fi version of AI and machine learning as some, you know, magical thing. So the mission is very clear, right? So the idea is, you know, to build machines um, that can think and act and sense and perceive like humans do. And when we use the word like humans do, our goal isn't to exactly build it the way humans do, it's just to draw inspiration from the way humans do it. And really the bigger mission here is more that, well, are there ways in which we can write programs that can effectively, you know, if we could in a room see that there's a red apple in the back, couldn't we write programs to have uh, for a computer to use their, you know, to use cameras to similarly sense the room and identify that there's an apple in the background, right? So there's no, you know, there's a very simple, curious uh, mission here, which is one of building these capabilities that allow you to sense, act, perceive, and reason. So reasoning is probably the most interesting one. And so reasoning is of the kind where very, very simple machines or very, very simple algorithms do this version of associations, which is saying, you know, um, when I see pixels that look, pixels are, you know, sort of in a camera image, you have colors that you're sensing, and if the colors the value, the numerical values look like this and that. If this and that, then maybe it's red, and maybe if there's a collection of red, then maybe it's an apple, right? So that's effectively something very simple. You're learning these rules. But as you, you know, push the boundaries further, the kinds of things we do are things like, well, we take into account like alternative reasons, alternative causes, right? For example, like, oh, well, it's in a room and it's red and uh, there's some yellow next to it and some green next to it, so much more likely that it is a fruit basket because those things go together and make sense. And in the you know, healthcare setting, this is, needed, this is needed in a very powerful way because you know, just because you see a measurement as high doesn't mean that measurement suggests it's this one disease. Very often it's the case that, like an example would be you know, creatinine is a measurement of kidney function, if creatinine is high, it means maybe your kidneys are not doing so well. But the question is why? And turns out maybe it has nothing to do with one particular disease. There could be five other diseases or that you could have gotten a specific medication that temporarily increases your creatinine level. So the ability to like take multiple things into account, reason about how they affect each other, influence each other, and reason is effectively, I think, one of the more powerful areas where I think um, AI will make a lot of progress and the ability to do this in a way where you're doing it from data. So it's one thing where you're building reasoning engines because somebody else is telling you how to reason, right? So you learn from your parent where you say, well, okay, the reason I believe it's not the red apple versus instead it's like a red toy is because of XYZ and you learn it by rote. But instead what machine learning allows um, 
is that we take tons and tons of data and we learn, we build learning algorithms that learn reason from data to say, well, the last time we saw something red, what else was next to it? And therefore, why else, what else could be happening that can explain away this? So I think in terms of um, building machines that can reason is a very powerful construct. And once you have something like that, you can imagine making all sorts of discoveries. It has nothing to do with just health. It can be, you know, discoveries about, you know, how the world works and why it works the way it works. And the more data we have, the more experience we collect. That experience allows you to discover, right? So that's effectively, I think, what's exciting about it. Mm -hmm. you know, um, if you have a machine that can reason, and something that has infinite patience, um, you, you've talked to me about things like developing new drugs and other ways that these sorts of machine learning can advance things. Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so one very exciting example of, of what can be done with AI today is to actually design new drugs in vitro, right? So they used to be in vivo in the living organism. Uh, and, and sorry, and in vitro, but now we can design them in silico. So in vitro was, you know, in the lab. And, you know, the way drug companies used to design new drugs was to be trying out new things in the lab and seeing which ones worked. But the problem is that that's mostly run its course. Uh, the probability of finding something really important in that way has, has dwindled. Luckily, there's a new way, which is we actually use machine learning to figure out from the structure, you know, of a compound what its effect is. And then we can actually try a like literally billions or trillions of different variations to see, oh, we want something that binds to the AIDS virus in this way. And, you know, we try to design a drug that does that. Uh, it, it, it is actually quite conceivable that in the not uh, very distant future, when a patient has a tumor, we can try, you know, all the different drugs that exist for that tumor. But the problem with cancer is that every, every tumor is different. But it's actually quite possible in the near future that there will be a drug that is designed specifically for that patient, for that tumor, to kill the tumor cells without harming the healthy ones. So this is kind of like a, a one person, you know, uh, you know, one of the big themes of AI in medicine is personalized medicine, is that it doesn't have to be the same recipe for everybody anymore. It can be tailored solutions. And one good example of that, I think, is literally designing drugs that, you know, are for, for a particular person, for a particular problem. Or even, you know, more broadly, these days a drug to get approved has to basically work for a lot of people and not harm anybody. We're actually moving to a to a, a, a um, you know a setting where a drug is useful if maybe it only helps five people and maybe it harms ten people. But as you know which one, if you know which ones it is, if you can predict, then you can just use it for those five percent of people where it's where it's helpful. But of course, we also need you know regulations to allow that to happen. Uh, we need you know, for example, something that machine learning enables that is very important is not this idea of we just do one drug trial you know with a few thousand people and then the drug is deployed and you know, we never hear about it again, is like where things are being continuously rolled out and, you know, more patients are trying them and we are continuously getting the feedback from those patients and refining our models of, of you know, what that drug is good for and what it isn't good for. So these are just a couple of examples. We've heard for how, how elder care can be done with robots even already today and, and people, people uh, some of them at least seem to like it. We've heard about cell phones for healthcare. We've heard about going from in vivo to in silico and personalized medicine where you can treat the specific tumor. Or, or I, I love the idea also of identifying whether a drug could be useful for 5% of the people and not used in the others, which could save just so much. And I, I'm, I'm thinking, Pam, you, you work on all of these issues. Um, let me first start from a policy perspective, because what Pedro just mentioned with respect to research and development of drugs, 
um, there's a constant struggle to contain costs in healthcare. And the reimbursement system continues to change. Um, the Affordable Care Act was the most disruptive, but over time, the reimbursement system has continued to evolve in ways to try to contain costs. And one reason that costs are expensive is research and development related to, to drugs, for example. And so the, the research applications can actually help to reduce costs. The reimbursement system changes with respect to value-based medicine can also help to achieve cost savings to the extent that it only only to the extent that it is improving outcomes that it is keeping people out of the hospital it's keeping them healthier it's keeping them in the home um, and to do that it requires a robust amount of data not only about that specific patient but to predict how that patient is going to react to a specific treatment or to remain compliant with a specific regimen requires predictive analysis based upon a, the population. It's a population health um, analysis dealing with all of this data, but to share that data has HIPAA implications and it also has state law implications. But to the extent that some may say this really is research that you're using to develop a treatment protocol for me in particular, research requires specific consent by the patient. So we, I think there's going to be some need to determine whether or not consent is needed from the patient to be able to share broadly this information. But even more particularly when we're dealing with the super protected types of information, which often for predictive analysis is really the type of information that's most vital, and that is the mental health of substance abuse. That, that type of information is going to be vital to this analysis, and so we need to be thinking about how we structure the sharing of that data and what consents may be required to do so. And, and that's, again, not, those are issues that we need to think about. Having said that, one very powerful use of artificial intelligence is to prevent cyber attacks because artificial intelligence can be continually gathering data to see where there are changes in activity in a, healthcare, in, um, a health information environment and react. So it has the power to prevent these issues from a um, cybersecurity perspective. Um, from a policy perspective, there's a lot of issues to take into consideration. How, how do we know, we're talking about data as if it's it's an unalloyed good. How do we know that it is? I mean, how do you know that, is it just the volume of data gives you confidence that you can rely on it as you're processing it to do other things? Or what are some of the ways that researchers look at that? Actually, data is not an unalloyed good. It depends entirely on what you do with it, right? Data is information that, you know, that allows you to make better decisions depending on what your goals are. If your goals are bad, you'll do bad things better, right? So there's, there's, so there's actually a couple of different issues. One is like the quality of the data, right? If the quality of the data is not very good, it doesn't matter that it's very large, right? Another one is the volume. The volume is actually a double-edged sword. In a way, having more data is always better, but actually, so for example, having more patient records allows it to build a more accurate model. Having more information about each patient you think would be better, right? But actually, can, it can also, it's actually a balancing act because too much of the wrong kind of information can actually confuse the system. So actually one of the things that machine learning systems have to do all the time is figure out what data to ignore. Yeah. And also a lot of that is very specific details that don't generalize. So learning is actually, I think it's true of human learning as well. Learning is as much about forgetting what is not important as it is about remembering what is important. So it's great, you know, 
it's good to have a lot of data. It's like having a big river, right? But, you know, if the river floods your house, then naturally it wasn't for the better. So we have to, to figure out how to make the best use of it. And that's actually what a lot of AI is, is about these days. I think I'd love to um, let you all ask some questions. Hi, I'm Graciela Gonzalez from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm at the School of Medicine and do research on social media for health. A lot of people are tweeting about their medications and what it causes. And um, there is also some, some um, policy that is going in that direction as to how can we use this and um, uh, this information that's made publicly available voluntarily by, by people um, that are uh, in, uh, concerned about their health. Um, I think this participation uh, can only be enhanced and facilitated if uh, researchers can work with it. And HIPAA ha has its place and it's important, but it has to be rethought. Yeah, and that actually brings up a good point because a lot of the data that is coming in will come from fitness trackers, for example, or personal information that is not protected by HIPAA. And um, those personal types of records may be, to the extent that it gets into decision-making, if it's a tracker that's decision-making, the FDA may regulate it, but otherwise that those software platforms are not regulated, that information is not protected. I'm not suggesting that it should be, but not, not all of the information that we're talking about is necessarily subject to whether it's um, a federal or a state law um, protection unless it makes its way into the medical record. Once it's in the medical record, then it is protected. But you're absolutely right. It's not, not all of this information that you're looking at is necessarily regulated. Representative Jerry McNearney. Uh, there's a tension that I, I detect between uh, big data and individual, uh, individual medicine. Uh, you have you have all this data and, and it, it gives you trends and ability to understand uh, but you want to uh, develop medicines for an individual as Pedro said so I'd like someone to address that is that an actual tension or is there uh, something there um, and the other question um, Pedro mentioned robots uh, for senior care in, in Japan uh, but what about robots for surgery uh, is there limitations to how much can be learned or actually robots someday going to be able to actually perform surgery on their own. Thank you. Yeah, so on the, on the first question, what big data creates, I wouldn't say so much there's a tension as there's an opportunity. When we have, you know, if you have, you know, 3,000 data points, you can't do anything personalized. You can only do things at the population level. When you have big data, what that means is that you have a reasonable amount of data about individuals. So, that, so when you have a lot of data, then you can start to model individual people. You know, right now we have a model of the population as a whole, but what we want to have tomorrow with, with big data that's possible is, you know, you know, a model of you specifically, a model of her. And then we know what is good medicine for her, we know what is good medicine for me, we know what is, you know, a good intervention for, for different people. Uh, you know, having said that, uh, there are a lot of issues, you know, on how the data gets used. And then I think there is, for example, a tension between the people who have, and the organizations that have a lot of data and the ones that don't, right? Knowledge is power, and data is knowledge, so data is power, right? So I think, you know, if you look at how things are evolving, you tend to get a lot of big data concentrated in, like, the question is always, like, who is going to do what with this data, right? And some of us maybe have less data than, than we should have, right? And, and that's, you know, maybe part of what we can, of, of what we can try to do. Uh, on, the, on the subject of, of robots for surgery, 
uh, this is a very exciting frontier, right? So these days already, you know, for example, the Da Vinci robot is an extremely, you know, uh, uh, accurate, very effective uh, robot for surgery. For the most part, the robots are still controlled by human surgeons. But I think the time is not far where we actually have robots that do the surgery themselves. And they have many advantages because, for example, they're not limited by the visual system that we have. Right? They can have a continuous integrated sensing of what's, of what's happening at the exact point of surgery. So I think this is another area where, where we're going to see a lot of progress. That's really interesting. And they don't get tired. Yeah, exactly. They don't get tired. Yeah. I think we have time for one question more, maybe. There's one in the back. So just considering the problem of really, really high prescription drug prices currently in America, I guess I have a two-part question. The first is, um, how significant of a factor in these high prices is the money spent on R&D? And secondly, how much more investment, both in terms of time and money, is required to get AI to a point where it can at least do R&D on these drugs as well as humans? I think there is actually, um, there are actually very legitimate efforts that are starting to happen in doing R&D on uh, both, in, like Pedro mentioned earlier, inventing new drugs, finding new indications for existing drugs. And this is using, you know, very detailed data of existing patients, seeing how people have reacted, all the way to new data that's being collected in the lab, in dishes, to measure, make measurements about what are possible new drug targets or candidates. So I think that's definitely getting accelerated in somewhere, a place where we will see a lot of activity, I think, in the next 10 years. What's commonly understood is that R&D is a big factor for um, the high drug prices, but well, I don't have a point. Let me give one element, I think, of the answer to that. In the drug development pipeline, where is the huge cost, right? The, the huge cost is actually not in coming up with new drugs. It's when you have drugs that look promising enough to be used, and they go into human trials. And human trials are extraordinarily expensive. They cost billions of dollars, they take many years, and then the drugs often fail. And this is really the single thing that most contributes to, to the cost of drugs. Now, fortunately, this is actually a place where machine learning can really help, and this is starting to help, which is what you do is when a new candidate drug is produced, you try to predict whether this drug is going to have harmful side effects or not. And then you can weed out a lot of candidates that way. In a way, maybe ironically, the, the biggest role of machine learning is not necessarily in coming up with the new drugs, but in weeding out the ones that are going to fail at a huge cost before that cost is incurred. So I think there, there are good signs of hope on the horizon, and this, this is already starting to happen. I want to ask you all to join me in, in thanking the speakers for a really fascinating discussion. Thank you for coming. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also find the Sustainable Energy Science on the Hill session in our podcast archive. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>